to 17. Very few texts in all of the Old Testament can match this passage in terms of significance. So let's get right to work by reading from God's Word together. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 7. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish His kingdom. He shall build a house for My name, and I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. I will be to Him a father, and He shall be to Me a son. When He commits iniquity, I will discipline Him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but My steadfast love will not depart from Him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our everlasting good. Would you pray with me now as we ask for the Spirit's illumination on our time together? Let's pray. Almighty God, we do recognize and acknowledge that You alone are God. You reign supreme in the heavens. Everything, Father, is underneath Your sovereign control and care and guidance. We submit our lives to You again right now, God, as we come to the Scriptures. We don't do this, Father, just to keep up tradition as to what churches ought to do. We don't do this, Father, just to maintain uh, the practices of church services. We do this, God, as an act of humility and obedience before You, to come before You and listen to Your Word. This is how the Lord Jesus Christ has authority in His church as the Scriptures are taught and made clear and our lives are submitted to them. 
And so we pray that You would give us grace now to hear the Scriptures with ears of faith. We pray, God, that You would manifest the authority and the glory of Christ in our midst through His Word. Remind us, Father, that this is the Lord Jesus' church. And we are His people. And we are dependent upon Him. Father, keep me from error. Help the things that I say to be faithful and true and accurate to the text of the Bible. And grant Your people discernment, God, that they would be nourished by the truth and that they would be built up in the truth and that the name of the Lord Jesus might be magnified among us. In whose name we pray. Amen. Well, in many ways, 2 Samuel 7 is like the grand central station of the Old Testament. All the tracks of God's earlier revelation flow into this chapter, while all the tracks of God's later revelation flow out of this chapter. And it's not an exaggeration to use the word all. All that God has said leads up to here. And all that God will say leads out from here. From Adam to Abraham to Israel, all that God has done before comes together here in God's promise to David. And then from David on to the prophets, and then ultimately on to the Lord Jesus, all that God will do comes out of this text. In many ways, 2 Samuel 7 is the hub. It's the grand central station of God's Old Testament Word. And the reason for this centrality is the inauguration of a covenant. Remember friends, in the Bible, a covenant is a solemn commitment that God makes with His people and guarantees with His Word. It's a solemn commitment established by God, guaranteed by God's Word. That's a covenant. And that's what God does here. He makes a covenant with David. The Davidic covenant as it has come to be known. Now I'm sure you noticed as we read that the word covenant is not used in the text, but the elements of a covenant are present. What's more, both the Psalms and the prophets refer to this moment as a covenant. And that's clearly what is going on. The Lord establishes, or we could say inaugurates, a covenant with His servant David. Of course, as you read through the Old Testament, you'll recognize this is not the first covenant God has initiated with His people. God made a covenant with Noah after the flood. God initiated a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12. And God established a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai when He gave them His law. This is how redemptive history moves along, friends. God's covenants are the rails along which redemptive history runs. And the Davidic covenant is supremely significant for the reason we just noted. It's this covenant that brings together so many aspects of those earlier covenants. And it does so in a way that uniquely prepares us to see the glory of Jesus Christ. But we're getting ahead of ourselves a bit at, at that point. That's actually one of the difficulties in studying this passage. There has been so much written about 2 Samuel 7 that we can quickly jump to all the commentary without ever actually paying attention to what it says in the chapter. And I certainly don't want to skip over the chapter this morning. So I'll just warn you ahead of time, there are mountains and mountains of helpful, good, encouraging information on the Davidic covenant that I'm not going to talk about at all. And that's okay. I leave that to your study. 
And I commend that to you. There's mountains of information that we won't get to. Our goal this morning is not to exhaust all that can be said about God's covenant with David. Rather, my goal is to help us study this chapter as it stands before us in 2 Samuel. And in order to do that, friends, we need to focus not so much on David as on the Lord. We call it the Davidic covenant, but it's actually God's covenant. We might overlook this, but I'll argue it's the key to the chapter. David doesn't ask for a covenant, and David doesn't establish this covenant. From the start, this was God's plan. And in fact, it was God's grace that brought it to pass. That's the best way to organize our time together. I'd like to draw your attention to four pictures of God's grace that are present in this significant passage. Four pictures of God's grace at work in this covenant. The first picture comes in verses 1-5 to where we see the grace of God's refusal. The grace of God's refusal. As we noted last week, things are finally secure in David's kingdom. Enemies are kept at bay. The capital is established. And even the Ark of the Covenant has come to dwell at the center of the nation's life. Things are secure. And verse 1 describes it quite well when it says, the Lord had given David rest. The nation is at peace. But the security of David's position soon causes the king to notice a disturbing disparity. Look how the king puts it in verse 2. He's talking with Nathan the prophet. And notice David's concern. See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. So so you can hear the disparity. David lives in a well-built house, while God's presence dwells in a tent. One is solid and imposing and probably very regal, and the other is temporary and probably shabby by comparison. And clearly, this bothers David. He wants to do something to change the situation. Notice Nathan's response in verse 3. Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So you hear the implication. The king's solution is to build God a house or a temple that would be a more fitting place for such an exalted God to dwell. And Nathan the prophet gives David the green light. But then the Lord intervenes. And plans change. Notice how quickly it happens. Verses 4 and 5. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? So God refuses David's plan. And He does so with crystal clarity. David may be the king of Israel, but he is ultimately the Lord's servant. Did you notice that change in verse 4? In verses 1-3, to David is only called the king. And then when God speaks to him in verses 4 and 5, God calls him, my servant. That's purposeful, friends. The Lord reminds David of the correct hierarchy in Israel. David may be the earthly king, but the Lord is the heavenly king, the great king. The Lord is God. David can make plans, but when God speaks, His word reigns supreme. Even the king has to submit himself to God's word. It's striking that the king asks the prophet for permission. Even the king has to obey God's word. God refuses David's plan. Yet this this raises an interesting question, doesn't it? Why does God say no? Why does God say no at this point? There's nothing inherently wrong with David's desire. So why the refusal? 
Well, to answer that, it helps to consider the cultural background of David's day. In the ancient Near East, particular kings were believed to represent particular gods. So the king of Moab represented the gods of Moab. The king of Assyria represented the gods of Assyria, and so on. But here's where it got interesting. Within that relationship, it was the God who was dependent on the king, not the other way around. So the king would build, temp- the king would build a temple because that's what his so-called God needed. He needed a temple. What's more, it was believed that the gods required temples before they would bless the king. Build me a temple and then I'll bless you. That was the background for kings and temples in God's day. You see, the so-called gods of the nations were actually very needy, very pathetic, very dependent on their respective kings. Now, apply that background to David's situation and you can see God's reason for saying no. The refusal is actually a display of God's glory. It's a display of God's glory. The Lord is reminding His people, I don't need a temple for my glory to be seen. The whole creation is my temple. My glory is displayed over all the earth, for all the earth belongs to me. Notice again the Lord's question in verse 5. Would you build me a house to dwell in? The you is emphatic in the original. It's as if God is saying, you, my servant, build me, the Almighty God, a house? (laughs) No, no, you've got it all wrong, David. Do you see the grace, friends? Anytime God reveals His glory, it is an evidence of grace. And that's what happens here. The Lord takes this opportunity to remind His servant, I am not dependent on you. You are dependent on Me. And the same holds true for us today, brothers and sisters. In His wisdom, the Lord will sometimes refuse our best laid plans in order to reveal His glory and remind us that He is God and we are not. Sometimes He'll say no. We are, not, we are dependent on Him, not the other way around. He's not dependent on us. And understand, friends, this is a good thing. This is good. We would not want the mission of the church to be dependent on us. Can you imagine if the Great Commission was dependent upon you and me fulfilling it? We wouldn't want the kingdom of God to rest on our efforts. Can you imagine whether or not God said at the beginning of Revelation 21, the following is contingent upon whether or not you do your job. What a terrible place to live. What a terrible world in which to live. To think that God is somehow dependent on our efforts to maintain His glory. We wouldn't want to live in that kind of world. And praise God, we don't. We're dependent on Him, not the other way around. So it might be difficult when God refuses our plans, but many times, I would even say most of the time, that refusal is a massive evidence of God's grace. Revealing His glory and reminding us of the good news that our lives rest upon Him, not His life resting upon us. God tells David no. And in that we see the first picture of grace, the grace of God's refusal. The second picture of God's grace comes in verses 6 and 7 where we see the grace of God's humility. The grace of God's humility. It might sound strange to speak of God's humility, 
especially after we just considered His glory. But that's the direction that the Lord takes. He's surprising. Notice verse 6. God reminds David he has been content with a tent since the very beginning of Israel's life. Verse 6, I have not lived in a house since the day that I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. So the Lord recalls those long years in the wilderness after the Exodus. You remember that? Forty years Israel wandered in the desert. They moved about in tents, wandering in the wilderness. In all of those years, did God ever complain about living in a tent? No, not once. Could God have demanded something different? Yes, of course. He's the Almighty God. He can do what He pleases because what He pleases is right. So He could have demanded a temple, but that's not the kind of God He is. With gracious humility, the Lord, in a sense, laid aside His glory and joined His people in their wandering. You see, God's dwelling in a tent was an everyday reminder, I am with you. I am not far off from you. I am in your midst, in the wilderness, right alongside you. In fact, it's the reality of God's presence with His people that gets the attention in verse 7. Notice what the Lord says. In all the places where I have moved with all the people Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? I mean, clearly the answer to the Lord's question is no. He never told anyone to build him a house. Not Moses, not Joshua, not any of the judges. God never demanded a temple. And yet, where was God? during all of those different eras, wherever His people were. When they moved, He was with them. Where they went, He was present. If they were in tents, He was in a tent. If they were in the wilderness, He was in the wilderness. If they were in need, He met them in their need. Do you see it, friends? Do you see the grace? It's so important for God's people to remember. His presence among His people is not the result of our pursuing Him. Rather, God's presence is always the result of His own gracious humility. His gracious willingness to be made low that He might be where His people are. Brothers and sisters, this is the kind of God we know and serve. He does not demand that we get all of the conditions right before He will dwell with us. No, our God reveals His glory in humility in His willingness to make Himself low, that we might know Him and enjoy His presence. Is that how you think of Him? As willing to make Himself low, that you might know Him? Is that how you think of Him? As humble enough to join you in whatever situation you face? Whether it's wilderness or blessing, whether it's wandering or walking in strength, You don't have to fix all your problems first. And you don't have to hide the true condition of your soul. Look, compared to God, we're all unworthy sinners who have no business coming into His presence. That's true of everybody in this room. Look around. Everybody in here is broken. And if you don't think that, then you don't understand what the church is for. Compared to God, we're all in the same place. We've got nothing. 
But that's just it, friends. The good news of the Bible is that God moved toward us before we ever moved toward Him. He takes the first step. He doesn't say, get out of the wilderness and then you can know Me. He comes into the wilderness. He comes into the wandering. Do you see? It's right here in 2 Samuel. It's right here. It's the Gospel in 2 Samuel. God was willing to dwell with His people wherever they went, and that means He's willing to be with you wherever you are. This is the God of the Bible, friends. A God so glorious, He needs nothing. But a God so humble, He draws near to His people in their need. What kind of God is this? The only God. That's what He's teaching David here in verse 7. And that's what He's teaching you and me as well. It's the good news of God's grace, specifically the grace of His humility. The third picture of God's grace comes in verses 8-16. to And this is really the heart of the passage. Here we see the grace of God's promise. The grace of God's promise. These verses are the core of the Davidic covenant. What God has said so far is kind of like a preamble. A prelude, an introduction. And now we get to the heart. Verse 11 captures it all quite well. Notice what God says at the end of verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So you'll notice the play on words. David wanted to build God a house, but the Lord responds by saying that He will be the one to build David a house. So David has in mind a temple, and God envisions a dynasty. A royal house. It's a play on words. David wanted to build a temple. God says, I'm going to build you a dynasty. One that will last long beyond David's life. Friends, that's the heart of the Davidic covenant. It's about kingship and dominion. Kingship and dominion. In His grace, God promises to establish a dynasty for David. And through that dynasty, God will extend His kingdom over all the earth. You see, verse 11 is the key. God promises to build David a house. Now, beyond verse 11, the, the content of this covenant is incredibly rich. Verse 11 is the heart, but the surrounding promises are just as profound, and they all flow from God's grace. There is so much to consider here, so perhaps it would help to just offer it in a summary form. You can think of these promises as coming in three time frames. Three, three time frames. And understanding each one helps us understand the whole. First off, God speaks of present promises. Look again at verses 8 to 11. You'll notice that all of these promises deal with David and his present kingdom. God has been with David throughout his life, verse 8. And now in verse 9, God promises to make David's name great. That's a present promise, something God intends to do in David's lifetime. What's more, David's great name will be a means of blessing to God's people. Notice again verse 10. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Again, that's a present promise. God will use David to bless His people with safety. And in the coming chapters, we'll see it fulfilled. Verse 11 calls this blessing by a specific name. Rest. Notice verse 11. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Friends, the key here is the progression from verse 9 to verses 10 and 11. 
What happens in verse 9? God promises to make David's name great. And then what is the fruit of that great name in verses 10 and 11? Rest for God's people. Great name for David becomes rest for God's people. Now, what is so striking here is that these are the exact same promises God spoke to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. Do you remember the Lord's promise to Abraham? Listen again to what God said from Genesis 12 and just listen for the echoes. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So you catch the echo there from Abraham to David? God promised Abraham a great name, and through that great name, Abraham would be a blessing. Now, centuries later, God makes the same promise to David, a great name. And it brings the same fruit, blessing, for the people of God. Friends, I hope you see the faithfulness of God at this point. The Lord is keeping His Word. The Lord is keeping His Word, and He's telling us how He will do it. The blessing of Abraham will now come through the Davidic king. That's the takeaway. The king represents the people of God. The king is the conduit, so to speak, of divine blessing. So, do you want to know the promise of Abraham? Do you want to receive the blessing of Abraham? Then you've got to be united to the king. The Davidic king. All of this comes in the form of present promises to David and to his kingdom. That's verses 8-11. to Along with these present promises, there are also future promises. This time coming in 12 to 16. Now we know the time frame is future because of verse 12. This is not hard to figure out. Notice how it begins. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. So as great as David is, he will die. David will not live forever. But that will not mean the end of David's line. God, according to His promise, will raise up another king, a descendant of David. And by His grace, God will establish the throne of this Davidic son. David's dynasty rests on the future promises of God. What's more, God promises that this Davidic son will have the honor of building God a house. Notice verse 13. He, speaking of David's descendant, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So, God's refusal of a temple was temporary and not absolute. David's heir will build the Lord a house. And as the Old Testament keeps going, we find out that this son is Solomon who builds God a temple and fulfills the promise. Again, the takeaway we need to see is that the future of David's dynasty, the future of David's dynasty, down even to what each king will do, the future of that dynasty rests on the covenant promises of God. David's house rests on the future promises of God. So present promises, future promises, there's one more time frame we need to see. God speaks of eternal promises. Eternal promises. Friends, this is where we begin to see that the Lord has something in mind that stretches far beyond David and Israel. Certainly, God is going to keep His Word to David. And certainly, God is going to do something in the life of Israel. But if you read these promises carefully, it quickly becomes clear that God's purpose stretches beyond David. The Lord speaks of these promises as eternal, 
in an absolute sense. I mean, just notice how it works out in, in the text. Verse 12, death will not destroy this covenant. David will die, but God's purpose will endure. The Lord promises to raise up a descendant. So the covenant lasts longer than death. Verses 14 and 15, sin will not destroy this covenant. Sin will not destroy this covenant. God anticipates the fact that both David and his sons will sin. They will fall short of faithfulness to the Lord. But in His grace, the Lord declares that the covenant is grounded in God's steadfast love. Notice verse 15. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. Now, Saul sinned and God took his promise from Saul. David and his sons will sin. Why does God not take the promise from them? Grace. Grace. Do you see it? You see how grace is the foundation of this covenant? David and his sons will fail, and yet the covenant will endure. Why? Because they deserve it? No, because God is gracious. And He chooses to keep the covenant. He guarantees the covenant with His own character. Death cannot destroy the promises, and sin cannot destroy the promises. Verse 16 then brings it to a conclusion. God declares that not even time will end this covenant. Death, sin, time, nothing will end this covenant. Notice in verse 16 that twice God speaks of forever. Forever. David's kingdom and his throne will have no end. For all eternity, God's kingdom will be ruled by a son in David's line. Forever. That's the extent of this covenant, friends. It's eternal, more powerful than death, rooted in grace, and outlasting even time itself. In fact, when time ceases to be, still, God will keep His Word to David. So if you step back and put all this together, you can begin to appreciate the depth and the breadth of God's grace at work in these promises. Ask yourself, friends, what could possibly come against David and against the people of God that could derail this covenant? What could come against them? Do they face enemies in the present? God's grace provides the promise they need. Will they face enemies tomorrow? God's grace has made provision for the future too. Do they face the enemy of their own heart that cannot keep God's covenant and wants to turn astray? God promises sovereign grace. But what about time? What about to the end of the ages? What about life after death? The covenant endures forever. There's nothing that could derail the purpose of God's grace. Nothing. God will keep His Word to David. This is the God of the Bible, friends. This is the God of the Bible. The God of grace who keeps covenant with His people both today and tomorrow and to the very end of the age. And this gracious God does not change. The same grace He showed to David, He now extends to His people today. The same faithfulness He gave to David, He now promises to those who turn to Him in faith. He doesn't change. The God He was for David is the God He intends to be for you. Do you believe Him? All of God's promises, from Abraham to David and on down to us, all of His promises are more certain than the sun rising. And therefore, we can, as that old hymn says, live our lives standing on the promises of God. 
The question is not whether or not God is the same. The question is, do you believe Him? It's the grace of God's promise. Even so, as we think about God's promises to David, this does raise one final question that we need to ask. This is arguably the most important question in the chapter. So if you haven't been listening, you should listen now. It's the most important question in the chapter. Why is 2 Samuel 7 good news for you? Why? God didn't make this covenant with you. And He didn't make this covenant with me. So how could something that happened thousands of years ago have any possible bearing on our lives today? Or to say it in a different way, why do we have the right to stand on these same promises? What gives you and me the right to stand on these promises? Well, the answer, friends, is found only in the grace of God's Son. The grace of God's Son. And I want you to see that this comes from the Bible. Look again at verse 14. And notice how the Lord describes His relationship with the Davidic king. God will be to him a father, and the king will be to God a son. This is actually the same kind of relationship that God instituted with both Adam and Israel. Adam was called a son of God, and Israel is also called a son of God. But now, the role of God's son will be focused not on the nation as a whole, but on the Davidic king. Again, do you see how redemptive history is getting narrower? It's zeroing in on one person. A son of David. God will be to him a father, and the king will be to God a son. And at the heart of this father-son relationship is the idea of faithfulness. Faithfulness. As a father, God will faithfully keep His covenant. And as a son, the king will be faithful to God's Word. That's what makes this father-son relationship so crucial. It's built on covenant faithfulness. First and foremost, the faithfulness of God. But also, along with that, the faithfulness of the king to obey God's Word. And yet, David sinned and was unfaithful to God's Word. Solomon, David's son, would sin and be unfaithful to God's Word. In fact, every Davidic king in the Old Testament would sin and be unfaithful to God's Word. That's why God kicks them out of the land. Every king failed. So in terms of the covenant, this appears to be not only a problem, but a fatal flaw Where is the faithful son who submits himself to the Word of God? Where is he? You see, this is why as the Old Testament is drawing to a close, the prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel began to speak of a new David. A better David. Who would be a faithful son. Who would keep God's Word to the end. Where is the faithful son? That's what they're asking. And then we come to the New Testament. And on the first page of the New Testament, we hear Matthew proclaiming that a son has been born in Bethlehem, David's city. And this son is himself a descendant of David. And as this son grows up, his life is marked by faithfulness to God and to His Word. At his baptism, this 
man is declared to be God's beloved son, echoing this same promise. And then after his baptism, this son goes out into the wilderness where his faithfulness to God is proven. Three times this son stands against the devil, quoting from Deuteronomy, revealing that he has hidden God's Word in his heart, just as the king was required to do. And for three years, this tempted but faithful son would teach with authority, cast out demons, heal the sick. All of those things proving that the kingdom of God had come near in his ministry. And then one day, this son would approach Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, just as the king was foretold to do. And as this son made his way up Zion's hill, the crowd would proclaim his identity, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the highest. But then that celebration ended. And when that celebration ended, this son would be faithful to the end. Having come to David's city, this son would receive his crown not by ascending to a throne, but by enduring a cross. There on Golgotha's hill, this son died as a substitute representing his people. But incredibly, death would not be the end for this faithful son. Death could not end the covenant. God promised David a great name, an eternal throne, and an everlasting kingdom. And on the third day, when the Lord Jesus took back up His life in resurrection power, God bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. And having destroyed death, God gave to His Son an everlasting kingdom, putting all things in subjection under His feet. And so, my dear brothers and sisters, the promises of this Davidic covenant have now come to us through the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even today, through the proclamation of the Gospel, the Lord Jesus is building a temple for His Father. Not a temple made of lifeless stones, but a temple of living stones. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's building His Father a house. And that house is you and me. So why can we stand on the promises we find in 2 Samuel 7? Why? Because Jesus, the Son of David, the Son of God, stood in our place. You see, the King represents His people. The King stands for His people. Jesus was faithful to His Father. And through His faithfulness, we who have believed have been transferred from the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of God's beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. You see, all the tracks of God's revelation flow into this chapter and flow out. And they lead us on to the Lord Jesus. If nothing else, friends, I pray this chapter from 2 Samuel encourages and equips you to see the glory of the Savior. He is worthy of your faith. He is worthy of your praise. He is our King. And to Him belongs the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.